Welcome to Crossroads, the broadcast ministry of Montgomery's First Baptist Church, where you can discover God's personal plan and power to conquer your problems through Jesus Christ. Join us now as God's Word heals, encourages, and enlightens your spiritual life. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Psalm 133. And if you have your outlines, you see at the top left, our call this morning is cohesion in the Christian life. That's going to be our aim as we uh, gather this morning to talk about cohesion in the Christian life. Now, this past week, as um, we heard about Jay's uh, retirement plans and his announcement uh, that it'll be coming in the next uh, 10 months, he ended his sermon by giving us three words that he wants uh, this next 10 months to be marked by. And those three words were intercession, cohesion, and progression. As I heard him talk, I just, the word cohesion just stuck in my spirit uh, so deeply, and I, I just really couldn't shake it this week. This idea of unity and cohesion as a faith family, but also across the landscape of the Christian life, that we would be uh, one unit, one body, our families would be more bonded together in a spirit of unity, that we would be peacemakers in the world, that as believers, we would just be cohesive. So that word stuck with me, and I couldn't shake it, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so I want to unfurl the banner of Psalm 133 over us. Psalm 133.1, it's on your outline there, so fill in these little words. The, the important wording in Psalm 133.1 is simply, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now, you've been there before. This verse makes a lot of sense to all of us as we walk through the life experience that it is good when everything is just in unity and harmony, is it not? In your life, when, when you and your husband and your wives, are, when you're hitting on all cylinders and everything is just working together good, it's good and it's pleasant, is it not? In your household, it's good and pleasant, right? In your job, when your boss and your coworkers and everybody's getting along and things are just good, you feel Psalm 133 in your spirit, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Do you not? But you also know the inverse of this verse, how horrible and how miserable it is when brothers do not dwell in unity. It's one of the things you lay in bed at night, just, just you feel that anxious spirit like sandpaper rubbing against your soul when there's anxiety against other people and there's hurt or tension in your homes and in your job with bosses. You feel the opposite of Psalm 133 often, do you not? It's how unpleasant and miserable and unhappy it makes us when there's division and factions and frustration amongst us and other people. Well, my heart has been just razor focused on cohesion this week, and I've been looking for it everywhere. And I think it was Monday or Tuesday night, the world and the stars all, all aligned beautifully. And my three-year-old and my one-year-old were in the living room, like reading a book together, right? And they were playing with toys together. And for the four minutes that this was going on, Brittany and I sat on the sofa watching, just enamored, just watching it happen. We're getting the camera out, the, the phone out. We're just watching, saying, this is beautiful, is it not? To hear their little three-year-old and one-year-old laughing voices radiating from the hallways and just happy and smiling and sharing wonderfully. And we were singing Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when brother and sister dwell together in unity. Parents, can I get an Amen. But four minutes later, 
that unity that we were enjoying and that joy of kids playing together and having fun together was met with a toy being taken and a book being shut on fingers and a, a hug that turned into a form tackle and <laughs> cries wrung out amongst the living room and timeouts were had and uh, tears were shed and we went quickly from how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity to why, Lord, are you doing this to us? We feel the frustration when parts of our lives just don't dwell together in unity. This morning, we want to unfurl the banner of Psalm 133.1 over the course of this message, but over our church This is a good prayer for our faith family as we walk through this season of transition, how good and how pleasant it is for our church, our families, our marriages, our homes to dwell together in unity. So we want to unfurl this. This is the the end-all, be-all of our sermon this morning is how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. Let's pray over this and then let's dive into your word, God. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word that clearly guides us and helps us in seasons like this. We know that every person who's walked into the doors of this sanctuary this morning comes with just baggage from the week, whether it's sickness or loss or frustration or marital strife or children that are bothersome, whatever it may be. God, we know that there's a lot of stuff that we've come into this room with. I pray that you would just lead us that you would guide us, that your spirit would be so just obvious in this place. That we want to be unified in our Christian life. We want to be cohesive and loving and caring towards one another. So God, thank you. Lead us and guide us as we walk through your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So we want to ask three questions this morning to help us kind of understand and digest what it means for us to be cohesive and unified as a faith family, but also, again, in our marriages, in our homes, in our jobs, and all the different places that the Lord has taken us. What does it mean for us to be a cohesive unit? So the first question we want to ask this morning is, why would our adversaries seek to disrupt it? Knowing that unity and cohesiveness in the body of Christ is such an important task that we are called to, why would our adversaries seek to disrupt it? Now, we need to get some background on who our adversary is and what he's seeking to do. We know that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone, seeking you, seeking me, seeking our marriages, seeking our kids to devour. We know that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is something we know from the truth of God's word, that we have an adversary who wants to disrupt every single thing that the Lord is trying to do in your heart and in the church. Know that. We, we need to understand that that's a present reality, that the devil is attempting nothing more than to discredit and disarm and disunify the body of Christ, your marriages, your homes, your families, and the situations that the Lord has called you into. We need to know it. Because knowing it gives us an opportunity to react to it. All right, can you, can you imagine if, if I heard the call that tonight at 9.30, robbers were going to break into my house? Do you know that There may be some things that I I do tonight to prepare. I would probably lock my doors, make sure my windows are shut tight, the the lights around the exterior of the house are on. I would likely call the police and let them know that I've got some people that may be showing up uninvited to my house. I need you to come patrol. I would probably call some of my friends who are more um, uh, 
have more muscles than I do, um, who could maybe do a little bit better of a job, then you, you see what I'm working with here. So I would call some friends into the house to say, hey, I need some help in protecting my house, right? But the last thing I'm going to do, knowing that there's an enemy coming into my house, is to say, well, we might as well just pack it up and leave for the night and just let them come get all of our stuff. That's ludicrous. In the same way, we know Satan's attacks. We know that in different seasons, he's going to come and he's going to attack. So we need to be ready, preparing ourselves by intercession and prayer and all the different things that we do to guard ourselves and our marriages and our homes and our families against the attacks of Satan. So knowing this, we need to do something about it. So what is our enemy seeking to disrupt? 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that the unity of the church is an incredibly important thing. Paul writes right at the beginning in 1 Corinthians that he's heard that in the Corinthian church there seems to be divisions and factions in the church. That people are following different people and trying to do different things and, and they're following different people in the church and there's just a bunch of factions and divisions within the Corinthian church. So right off the bat, 10 verses into the Corinthian letter, Paul is already writing about the factions and how this simply should not be so. So for us this morning, we see how our adversary so desperately wants to rip apart the fabric of our Christian walk and our Christian relationships and cohesiveness. So what is he after? One, he's after uh, to destroy our purpose. There's a destruction of purpose that our adversary is after. Our adversary wants to distract us and discredit us, focusing on a variety of issues and a variety of things that don't hold much kingdom weight. We've all heard about those churches that have split in two because of carpet color and choice of roofs and all these different things, that there are a variety of things that our adversary likes to do to discredit us and get us off of our main and primary purpose of making disciples amongst our neighborhoods and amongst the nations. We have a singular purpose as a church to lift up and exalt the name of Jesus in everything that we do from the morning we get up to the evening when we go to bed. Our goal in life is to lift up high the name of Jesus. And so what does our enemy like to do but get us focused and distracted on so many things that hold so little kingdom weight? This is what our enemy does to get us gossiping and slandering and focused on different people within the walls of the church and saying, Jesus, you be lifted high. And so the enemy comes to destroy our purpose, but also destroy our productivity. Right alongside destroying our purpose, as we get off of our purpose, we often have a destruction of our productivity. When we forget what our main purpose is, we get focused on doing so many things that have so little eternal weight that it destroys the productivity of making disciples and lifting up the name of Jesus. You can imagine that we watched some football yesterday, and I want you to imagine as you were watching football that you saw a play that just simply just did not develop well. And you learn later that the left side of the offensive line thought that they were running a lead left. The right side of the line thought that they were running a screen pass right. The wide receivers thought they were running a Hail Mary. The quarterback thought he was running a quarterback sneak. Can you imagine the turmoil that would be on the field? You imagine a touchdown is going to happen? Highly doubt it. Right, when the team is not on the same page and there's a, there's a high level of productivity that is lost, and the end goal is not their purpose being met. And friends, as a faith family, we know that our enemy is out to destroy our purpose, but also destroy our productivity for the kingdom. No, in your marriages, the devil is out to destroy your purpose and your productivity as husband and wife, to do the things that God has called you to, to live the kind of lives that reflect the gospel in all different ways. Your adversary is out to seek, steal, to kill, and destroy every part of your Christian walk, which will lead us to the third one, a destruction of people. 
The devil wants to destroy you and me in the process of destroying the church by getting us pitted against each other and sniping and wounding people around this faith family. The devil is out to destroy the church by destroying the the church's people. And so we guard against this, knowing that the enemy is out to destroy the purpose and productivity and the people within the church. We have to be on guard and prepared. So let's go to number two, the second question. What does unity and cohesiveness demonstrate? What does it demonstrate to a world out there and a world in here? What does our cohesiveness and our unity demonstrate to a world that's watching? If you turn over to John chapter 13, you see Jesus talking to his disciples and giving a good admonition for what this love and cohesiveness can look like. John 13, 34 simply says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does it demonstrate? One, verse 34, that we have understood the gospel. When we are cohesive and unified and loving towards one another, when we love each other with that brotherly affections, when we put aside all of our needs, desires, and wants to love other people well, it demonstrates that we have internalized and understood the gospel ourselves. When we have truly grasped onto the gospel, that we will be loving people and caring people and helpful people in the world around us. And secondly, on top of that, it demonstrates that this gospel is worth trusting. When we are cohesive as a body of Christ, it demonstrates to a world out there that this gospel that we cling to and claim is worth trusting in. Imagine you're walking through a hard season of life, a difficult season. You're in the hospital, you're hurting, your marriage is struggling. And you go to the church, and the church is there to support you and encourage you and lift you up and help you through these difficult seasons of life and encourage you and be there side by side to help you through the difficult seasons of life. What does that demonstrate to a world out there is that we believe and understand the gospel, and the gospel is worth it in your life. It means we cling to it and need it desperately. But when we have a a faith family and a marriage and a home in which we snipe and hurt and wound each other within the walls of the church, what does it demonstrate to a world out there that the gospel is truly not worth it? There's enough of it out there. Why would we come in here and get more of it? And so you see John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I, Jesus, has loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, this simple fact, the way that we love and care for the brothers and sisters around us demonstrates to a world out there that we are his disciples. What it demonstrates to a world outside the walls of this church is this gospel that we claim, that we sing about, that we talk about, that we long for, that it's truly worth it. This is what cohesiveness does, unity does, is it says, I need to be a part of that. When I'm down on my luck, when I'm hurting in the muck and mire of this world, I need people around me also. I need this gospel. I need help. So friends, when we are cohesive and unified as one body, friends, do you know what it does to a lost and dying world other than to make the gospel look radiant and beautiful and splendid and so trustworthy and needed? So we've seen. Why would our adversary seek to disrupt it? I think we see even even more now. And what does it demonstrate? But let's get to the main point here. Question number three. How do we deploy it? How do we deploy it? I think so often it's easy to talk about sermons like these and talk about messages and say, you know what? If everybody else would just get it together, this cohesiveness and unity thing would be so much easier, would it not? 
You've been in sermons before where you hear something, you're like, if my wife would just listen to that, then my life would be so easy, right? And this could be one of those messages where, you know what, if, if, if my boss would just listen to this, if, if my Bible fellowship class would just listen to this, then we would be so much better as a unit. But just when that temptation begins to come, stop yourself short. Because this is an individualized sermon. This is for you and for me. How will we be unifiers and cohesive makers in the world around us? So let's turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4 and let's dive in to figure out how Paul gives us the admonition to be unifiers in the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. I want you to look right here. Number one, how do we deploy it? How do we do this unity thing? First, we daily walk with the Lord. Now, I want to camp out here for just a minute. Let's daily walk with the Lord. This is what Ephesians gives us. When we daily walk with the Lord, this is how we affect unity and cohesiveness. But when you see the word therefore in Scripture, what do you do? You always look when you see therefore and see what it's there for, right? Pretty good play on words, right? So when you see therefore, you see what it's there for. And before Paul gets to chapter 4, talking about unity in the body of Christ, he has laid the groundwork in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to remind us who we are in Christ, before Christ, and now who we are in Christ. Look at chapter 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God. The two best words in all of Scripture. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you and me. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. The centrality of knowing who we are before Christ and who we are now, knowing this, believing this, trusting in this, letting it soak into our spirits, then leads us to be unifiers in the church. We're not going to be unifiers. We're maybe just good moral people if we don't get this portion right, that we desperately need Jesus desperately, desperately, you and me need Jesus. Don't look to your neighbor and say, they need Jesus. We need Jesus. You and me need Jesus. And the only way this unifying agent of love in this church is going to work is when each person collectively says, you know what? I've got to have Jesus in my life. When you daily walk with the Lord, this is how cohesion happens. Husbands, when you say, you know what? I know my marriage is falling apart, but I am going to daily walk with the Lord. Wives, when you say, I know at times this is not working, but I am going to daily walk with the Lord. Kids, when you see fragmentation in your home, you daily walk with the Lord. When your boss is not quite the boss you want it to be, you say, you know what? I am going to daily walk with the Lord. We've got to get chapters 1, 2, and 3 right first before we move into unity. Each of us across the landscape of this church must be walking daily with the Lord. It means a denial of ourselves, trusting in Jesus. Saying, I know I have sinned and fallen short, but now I am an adopted son of the Most High, and so I'm going to start living like it. And so let me ask you, before we go on to the rest of this chapter and the rest of this sermon, I just want to ask you, are you following Jesus? 
I know it's an easy question to just pass over. Yes, I'm following Jesus. But ask yourself, are you following Jesus? Do you know him? Are you seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost? Are you buying into the fact that he loves you and cares for you and desires a relationship with you? Are you following Jesus? Or have we maybe hit the snooze button of our faith day in and day out and day in and day out? And this is the question that you need to ask right now. Are you following Jesus? This is the most important question that I can ask you more than unity, anything else, is that are you following Jesus? And the good news is he loves us and cares for us and he welcomes us back home, not with a condemning arm saying, get it together, but with loving arms outstretched saying, come back, come home. Come to me all you are weary and burdened and I want to give you rest. Cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. This is the kind of God that we serve, not a condemning finger, but a loving outstretched arm. And so, friends, to create unity in the church, we first and foremost, individually, across the landscape of this church, individually must agree that we must walk with the Lord daily. Verse 1 just says, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Each of you have been called to magnificent things and different jobs and homes and skill sets and different gifts and abilities that God has given you. And he has called you with you to walk with you in each of those places. We're not sitting with the Lord. We're walking with the Lord here, right? We're walking with him. We need to start maybe walking with the Lord to our jobs, not leaving him at home. We need to start walking with the Lord to we teach Bible fellowship classes for children. Maybe we need to walk with the Lord to the caring center and start volunteering for the least of these. Some of us need to walk to our neighbors and start loving them to Jesus. Some of us need to walk to our husbands and wives and apologize for the way that we've acted. We need to start walking with the Lord daily. And this is a key point that I don't want to beat too hard, but at the same time, it is incredibly important. Daily, there's a walking with the Lord. So let's move forward. Once we walk with the Lord, secondly, we maintain a humble spirit. Verse 2, walk in the way you've been called with all humility and gentleness. We maintain this humble spirit as we come to Christ, as we drink deeply from the water of his word, and as we trust in him more fully, what happens is we humble ourselves even more. And I use the word maintain because maintaining a humble spirit is something that truly requires maintenance. The same way you probably, before the summer hit, you probably got your air conditioner or your car tuned up, right? You take it to somebody who knows a lot more than you do, and they open up the hood, and they start um, putting stuff in it and twisting knobs and levers, and just things happen in there. I don't know. You car people, y'all know what they do, but they tune it up so that it's working properly, right? Put new oil in it, rotate the tires, and uh, just help things work properly. Get new Freon so the air conditioner is moving and grooving, right? We want that. That's good. We tune it up. We maintain it so that it's functioning properly. In the same way, if we're not careful, our humility and our Christian walk requires such good maintenance that we wake up and say, Lord, give me a John 3.30 spirit this morning that you would increase and I would decrease. Father, take my flesh away from me. God, just fill me with a spirit of service and humility to love people, to see people the way that you have seen them. I need that in my life. So we maintain our humble spirit by just asking the Lord to help us and lead us and guide us. So we daily walk with the Lord and we maintain a humble spirit and we also are patient and forgive others with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We want to be patient with others and forgive them. 
This word that the Bible uses is bearing with one another, meaning that we literally put people on our backs and carry them. This is such a good picture of the church at large. That instead of stabbing people in the back, we put people on our back and carry them to Jesus. Instead of wounding people and putting them down in the dirt, we walk arm in arm together as a faith family. This is what we do in our marriages. Instead of keeping a record of wrongs and sniping our husbands and wives, we walk arm in arm together as we serve Jesus together. Friends, we need each other in this walk, and so we're patient with people, forgiving. If we've understood how much we have been forgiven, we extend this forgiveness to other people. Ephesians 4 just tells us gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3, we become an eager peacemaker, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We become eager peacemakers. Mean that we ask the Lord to give us eyes to see and go after people who are disunified and fractured. We are eager peacemakers. Go into disunity and setting peace over it. One of my favorite things Jay's ever said is talking about anger and how it's good for us as believers to be thermostats. Or, yeah, thermostats, not thermometers. That we go to a situation and we set the temperature of the room, not reflect it. In the same way, we run to division and disunity and we become eager peacemakers. Not letting things blow over. We want to be eager in our pursuit of peace, not eager in our pursuit of disunity. We want to be people stirring the pot. We want to go to people and help people be unified, put people together, not break people apart. This is a calling of believers in the church and outside universally that we would go and be unifiers of people, eager in the pursuit of peace and the, and the spirit of peace. And then lastly, we want to fix our eyes on the truth. Verse 4 through 7, I want you to hear how many times Paul uses the word one in these verses. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This word one has a lot of weight to it at this point. Paul's reminding us that we serve one God. There's one faith, one baptism. There's one reason why we gathered here this morning. It's Jesus. We didn't come to this place to get Krispy Kreme donuts before our Bible fellowship class. We came to this church, and this church exists to lift up the name of Jesus. We all have come here saying that we need Jesus, that we are in a place in our lives where we don't have it all together. And so we have come together to focus on the truth that we all desperately need Jesus in our lives. This is the reason we gather. It's the reason we sing. It's the reason we talk about Scripture. It's the reason we have Bible fellowship classes to preach and talk and encourage each other in the name of Jesus. And so we fix our eyes on that truth. We focus on that truth. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And when we get off course, you have people around you to say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep running this race. So friends, we want to maintain, maintain the unity in our homes and in our jobs and in our families and in this church. We remind each other of the truth to fix your eyes on Jesus encourage each other in our faith. We pick each other up and we carry each other to the finish line. Because ultimately we need God's word. Last little blanks before we conclude is let God's word lead us, instruct us, encourage us, and remind us. We are so grateful for the unity in this faith family. We're thankful for the ways the Lord has blessed each of you and given us such a spirit of cohesiveness and unity. And we want to pray that the Lord would continue to increase and grow us together so that we can lift up the name of Jesus more brightly in the world around us. 
in your marriages know what's coming. That you can be ready so that you lift up the name of Jesus by your love for one another. In your homes, that you would lift up the name of Jesus as you are a team partnering together to raise little disciples for the kingdom of God. In your jobs, in your homes, in your sports teams, in your schools, that you would be more cohesive and unified with the people around you to lift up the name of Jesus. Friends, let God's word lead, instruct, encourage, and remind you as you daily walk with the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you for sharing worship with us. We trust God has used this broadcast for your spiritual growth and encouragement. If this ministry has touched your life, please let us know. If you'd like to share in the cost of this broadcast, you may send your gifts and support to First Baptist Church. Your partnership with us will help strengthen and extend this ministry and will be greatly appreciated. And remember, when you are at the crossroads, follow Christ.